Hello, and welcome to Threadings, the newsletter and podcast where you explore. Mm-mm. Hello, and welcome to Threadings, the newsletter and podcast where we explore the things stitching. Ooh. Hello, and welcome to Threadings, the newsletter and podcast where we explore the things keeping me together at the seams. This includes, but is not limited to, black feminist world making, very strong cups of pistachio tea, and sitting down with a very good book and getting lost for at least a few hours. I have a podcast essay for you entitled, You've Been Traumatized Into Hating Reading, and It Makes You Easier to Oppress. I wasn't going to publish this essay, because I don't like to yell, (laughs) but I'm a yell. We're going to get right into it. The introduction, we begin from a morsel. We're going to get right into it. The introduction, we begin with a morsel from Toni Morrison, great black American author. The point is so that it doesn't look like it's sweating, like effort. You see, it must appear effortless. No matter what the style, it must have that. I mean, the seams can't show. That's Toni Morrison interviewed by Jane Bakerman for the Black American Literature Forum, summer 1978. Consider this first overarching thesis. The brilliance of educational work lies in the exact opposite task. Where most art forms do work, significant work, to make it look easy. The seamless novel, the floating ballerina, the effortless jazz player plucking a new melody from the ether. The teacher seeks to stop a moment in time. Did you catch that? You see the mechanism they use there, the split second decision, look closely don't miss it. Taking the form, shaking it off the model, turning her technique inside out, pointing at the seams, the intestines, the world making, and each intrepid and intentional detail. Did you miss it? We find the task of the teacher, an occupation I prayed <laughs> with every reasonable fiber of my being, every, every self-perseverant burst of blood I have to never ever become. So then why are we here? Pictured in the newsletter is a still from Richard White's Black Power Trip to Ghana, 1953, a beautiful series of black and white portraits. I'd encourage you to look. Threadings is a newsletter and podcast in which I explore the interconnectedness of our worlds and freedoms. Exploration tethers me to the art of world making. In this examining the seams in which I bind my life together, I stitch my politic together, I work for you all. This patchwork quilt of sorts, my revelations on the systems of this world, on the odd and beautiful realities of existing in public, the ways I am ignited and ignotic, sorry, ionic. A seamstress of thought, just like my mother's mother's mother, here I am, hunched over my keyboard, a sewing machine, all in a labor of love. I write to you today because I have apparently made it look easy there's a cadence on the internet that occurs without fail the where i state the need to read while giving you a piece of myself stitched together right someone many someones respond with the idea that i must not know what it's like to struggle to read and kindly this infuriates me not just because of my pride why do people assume instead of ask but because it's cheap Cheap analysis. Remember I told you I didn't want to yell? That's too bad for today. The question is, why do I, among so many, have a knee-jerk reaction of doubt, disbelief, and anger when someone asks me to read? 
I'm gonna run that back for you. Why do I, among many, have a knee-jerk reaction of doubt, disbelief, and anger when someone asks me to read? I announce myself as the narrator as I compete with your attention for the next mm, 40 or so minutes, give or take. Hi, my name is Ismatu. I'm a poet. I am writing a persuasive essay. I am doing you a favor and announcing these things to you rather than silently wiggling into your brain to change your mind and have you think it was your idea. And I encourage you to consider me critically. This newsletter podcast is called Threadings because I want my seams out and obvious. Here, I can show my work, display for you the sewing pattern, have you trace with me the stitches that assemble me into an artist, a teacher, a, a great big worm tucked in a fancy scarf. I am here to be educative, educative, educative. <laughs> I'm here because I want you to remember that I'm a person with very specific lenses on the world. I want you to remember that everything about our current existence in the Anthropocene, as in the human sovereign world, is intentional and by design. The Anthropocene is intentional and by design. Someone made it all up. Someone's, in fact, made it all up. World making is an intentional and detail-oriented process. What can be made can be remade over and over and over again. I want you to leave this place having exercised your ability to locate the seams. Leave this place looking for the threads of the world around us. They're everywhere. We have four central theses interwoven throughout the essay. Challenge yourself to find them in the supporting arguments, even when I don't state them explicitly. One. The ruling class benefits from illiteracy. Short form video entertains more than it sticks. Reading is a discipline distinct from listening, watching, or other forms of literacy. It's a skill that needs to be honed separately. And absolutely no one is coming to save us but us. And we're off. Are we ready? First big thing. The reason you hate reading is because the ruling class benefits from illiteracy and not total illiteracy. Mind you, that's that's bad for business. Very bad for business. The ruling class, as in law and policymakers, oligarch businessmen, celebrity hedge fund managers buying up single family housing, etc. They need you literate enough to be employable, illiterate enough to be able to work for them, but not so much that you realize how badly the working class gets fucked over in this iteration of world making. Read enough to be able to consume and to execute, but not to consider critically and certainly not enough to create. That's a bar. We're going to run that one back. I need you to be able, if I'm a world maker, if I'm an oligarch in charge, I need you to be able to read enough to consume, which is rarely if ever radical, to be able to execute the instructions I give you and never enough to be able to consider critically and certainly not to be able to create, which is oftentimes radical in a world that siphons our ability to world make. Because then what? A mass of people realizing we can create and recreate everything we see and touch into something kinder for us? Ghastly. Absolutely not. Countless journalism project countless journalism, podcast projects, quantitative and qualitative research, death knell the same morbid conclusion. US American populace cannot read. I linked a brilliant podcast project below. It's recommended all the time, sold a story. We know, right? We know that illiteracy, the, in, the inability to read or the inability to read well enough to have it serve you. We know that it's a massive problem. It's an epidemic of sorts. We're just too exhausted to care. I'm not going to spend my time here 
analyzing data, all right? I think it's kind of useless and other people, not that analyzing data is useless, but it's useless for my purposes here. Why is that? I'm saying this, right? This next bit. I'm saying this as a trained therapist, okay? Your relationship with reading is likely more of a direct relationship. Your relationship with reading is more than likely a direct result of your experiences with authority figures as a child. Okay. In a great many iterations, if you were lauded for reading, you were put on a pedestal in front of your peership, it might be stress inducing to return to work the muscles you know have atrophied. Are you still good or worthy of help if you can't read like you used to in the fourth grade? And if you were labeled a problem, difficult in class, slow, I bless and keep you. As if you were made to feel less than for your reading ability, unintelligent burdensome, other ableist slurs that we use, waste of space, bound for prison, then you likely have a literal stress response when someone mentions or suggests reading to you. Reading is a site of trauma that your body holds onto for most of us that have been brought up in a US American K through 12. And anyone that suggests reading must just not understand what you went through as a problem child, as a neurodivergent child, as someone um, falling from the pedestal all the time. Every objection imaginable will materialize when someone attempts to suggest that you read. This is why I think data is really irrelevant here to spurring anyone to any real action. You can't just brute force your way through a trauma response. Many of us were given reading as homework exclusively, never as a fun or revolutionary tool, a tool of imagination. So it often feels like drudgery, even still. None of us have a neutral experience with the discipline of reading and that is by design. We live in a world ruled and ran by the written word. We live in a world that is ruled and is ran by the written word, similar to money. Right? The tool itself is not necessarily bad. However, in this iteration of world making, proper literacy in reading and writing, as well as financial literacy, are often the difference between agency, freedom seeking, and autonomy for self determination and working in someone else's world making in abysmal, abysmal conditions perpetually. Being able to be literate in the tools that run the world is the difference between having agency in your world and in your life and not. So if the empire wanted you to have a good relationship with reading, they would ensure one. Just look at Cuba, beating our US adult literacy rates despite a decades, multiple decades of overt economic warfare. Your relationship with reading is fucked up because burning books is a bad look. I'm gonna run that back. Hold on a second. Cause that was good. Run it back, Abusive Junction. Your relationship with reading is fucked up because burning books is a bad look. The empire uses overt violent oppression like that as a last resort because it makes it near impossible to seamlessly convince people that they are not oppressed. And to be able to oppress people in the scale that we're doing it to hide an empire like this, people need to not know. Where else does the empire have seamless oppression? 
Look for those threads everywhere. So the far easier route, right? Traumatize the kids, make them hate reading, tie plenty of guilt, shame, and fear into the process of reading in adulthood and returning to that discipline. Make them feel like it's an innate talent, right? You either have it or you don't, rather than a skill that you need to hone and learn and practice. You never have to burn the books if no one wants to read them in the first fucking place. And that means that you can allow texts that chronicle blueprints for our collective liberation to hang out in plain sight. The internet age is the most collective access to information we've ever had as humans in every iteration of our timelines here on this earth. And most of us cannot read well enough to allow it to change our lives. I could spend this section pulling numbers and analyzing data, but I don't actually think that would change much. We know it's a problem. We exist under the consequences. Instead, I want to story tell a little bit. I want to tell you about my life. Why does the narrator, Ismantu Gwendolyn, like reading? Okay. I was an avid reader as a child as a means of escapism because home was spooky. I didn't like reading necessarily. I liked not feeling what was happening around me. Reading had the same allure as TV or video games or YouTube videos, but I experienced childhood in a time where TV did not work if it was raining or snowing and YouTube videos took 30 minutes to load a pop. And also our mom sold our PS2 very unceremoniously right out from under us. Nonfiction felt like homework as a kid because it was really only ever given to me as homework. And honestly, without understanding the importance of studying the human tapestry as this big, long, connected, ongoing story, nonfiction still feels like homework to me. Reading fiction specifically as a child opened up three very important conclusions. One, that reading could feel good. Two, that other worlds were possible. And three, that it was possible to make up worlds in the first place. Once more, reading fiction as a child opened up three very important conclusions. Ready? Count them with me. One, that reading could feel good, that it didn't just have to be homework. Two, that other worlds were possible in the first place. And that three, this is the big one, it was possible to make up worlds. I remember the book that unlocked that third conclusion, that very important conclusion, was Inkheart by Cornelia Funk. Someone just made that up. They made up the cast between the pages of the book. Multiple worlds, in fact. That book holds multiple worlds. So what does that mean for this world? How much of my world can I make up? How much of this world is made up? Brilliant questions. The best gig. The best gig in the world is to be a little black girl that reads. Not everybody is rooting for you all the time. Um... Wait, I'm gonna start that over. Listen, the best gig in the world is to be a little black girl child that reads. Everyone is rooting for you all the time and everyone leaves you the fuck alone. No one asks you no questions. No one bothers you with a book in your hand. This was and is a great relief to me. Even as an itty bitty little being, I was trapped in the body of a girl child, which meant that people always expected me to be socially graceful and kind and extroverted, of which I am none of those things. Here's another editor's note. Literacy is just your ability to use a tool fluidly. Wherever there is a human skill, there is literacy, data literacy, social literacy, ecological literacy. I consistently find that my generation, Gen Z, to be high, real high in media literacy and very low on oral, as in the things you hear, and written literacy. 
This essay focuses on literacy within the written word with this in mind, right? Take another breath. The reason I champion reading is because I am from peoples who cannot read easily and I see those effects. I didn't come to reading consistently because the act in and of itself was easy. I have multiple learning divergences, dyslexia, autism, ADHD. I still, still struggle to focus my mind on the page. And at this point, I read for a living. I came to reading because not reading was worse. It was worse. Not reading meant that someone tried to impose the role of girl child onto me to rope me into chores or force me to talk to them or otherwise engage in ways that felt really foreign to me and my body. I didn't know how to answer the questions of my constant discomforts. Why words swam on a page? Why I couldn't move my body in certain ways? Why I had to look people in the eyes and speak to them on demand until early adulthood? I just knew that reading was far safer than pretty much anything else I'd managed to do really poorly. I also advocate heavily for the written word because I know the reality of illiteracy. My mom spent her entire life being told she was too unintelligent to really make something of herself. She, a brilliant seamstress, okay, prolific orator, hostess, event organizer, master chef, as in fed a wedding of 300, several courses with herself and her two friends, master chef, okay? She stopped being able to help me with my homework once I reached the fourth grade in the, in the United States. She knows her letters, right? So she's not completely illiterate. She's just not fluently literate, as in she has too little practice with the tool of the written word to have it under her full command. I inherited my dyslexia from her. Nobody thought to check for learning disabilities or alternative modes of learning in newly independent Sierra Leone. They just, you know, it was easier to think she was just slow. My father is, the only, is from the only tribe indigenous to Sierra Leone. He's an anomaly because he pursued his associate's degree in the United States. He was a reading fool, which is uncommon for his area. He comes from upline Sierra Leone, what we would call um, like backcountry in English. It's essentially untouched jungle. Most of my paternal family was not written word literate functionally or in any sense, which meant my parents would buy me a book sooner than they bought us groceries if it came down to it. The knowledge that the difference between living in the United States and in Sierra Leone during the heights of the war hinged on the fact that my father could read well, used literacy to be able to speak well, and got opportunities to study here, it changed us. Reading held the difference between chances at generational safety and chances of losing your kid in a war. In college, okay, wait, editor's note, right? We're skipping a lot about the narrative of my life. This essentially went from poor kid in an unstable home environment to college student. And while I don't need to fill in all those dots, imagine me sliding you a paint by numbers, okay? Note to yourself how unusual it is to be a kid with multiple learning disabilities whose primary caretaker could not read a chapter book comfortably, ending up on full scholarship at a collegiate institution in the United States, especially not a black kid. Okay, that's word to Miss Gwen because I'm a public scholar and my sister completes her PhD in fucking music theory in a handful of years, put some respect on my namesake. Anyways, in college, I studied oral history and traditions of record keeping regarding Ebola and Sierra Leone, specifically an oral history project because many of the survivors cannot read or write in any of the languages that they speak. They would sign consent forms with their fingerprint. Okay, they couldn't spell their own names. 
This leaves them vulnerable to being exploited by foreign researchers who come and study the long-term effects of a disabling virus, who make money off their bodies and their stories and their personhoods and leave them where they found them. And they don't even have access to the research because most of them cannot read what's being written about them. I chose to fashion my research in this way to honor the stories that would otherwise never be told and because the researchers that came before me only spoke in English and mandated literacy to be able to consent to the study. Sierra Leone has such poor literacy in adults because public education was systemically defunded and privatized until the conditions of war were so desperate and so volatile that civil war eventually did take root. Now, every school in Sierra Leone requires fees from parents to attend. I champion literacy because we are on a similar road in the United States. And this is just as an aside. I don't tout Sierra Leone's history as a cautionary tale. It is what happens to nation states when you systematically deprive people of their ability to seek and architect their own happiness. When you wage war on the people via economics, when you wage war on the people via drugs, when you wage war on the people via imprinting them with ignorance that they did nothing to deserve but suffer under. Physical, violent, gun ammunition war follows. It's the only thing that can happen next. Sierra Leone is not a cautionary tale. The same road. We're on the same road in the United States. As an adult, especially as an adult that has had COVID, which is a brain disease, I read and write every day. Because I now have a brain that disintegrates this particular skill faster than many of my counterparts. That was already the case with some of these divergences I have, but most especially after having survived COVID. I have learned the skills of social grace and of public speaking, of data analysis by similar necessities. And I'm required to use these skills on a regular basis so they stay sharp. Reading and writing are disciplines I have to choose to sharpen actively because if I don't read then I won't. And I don't really have to read if I don't want to. I am a gifted and prolific speaker. I inherited this from both my parents. I, I began public speaking when I was 14. I don't have to read in order to garner and keep an audience. Many, most popular public figures do just be talking. Not a source in sight. <laughs> I read and write because it keeps me responsible to my constituency, which is you all. This is another reason reading as opposed to watching a video or listening to a podcast is a skill worth developing on your own to protect yourself from adopting the feelings of the narrator, me, Ismatu, a poet who is desperately trying to convince you of something. Here are some words from Tony Cade Bambara, great black American artist who manages to know me before I was born, discussing why she writes. I don't think that literature is the primary instrument for social transformation, but I do think it has its potency. So I work to tell the truth about people's lives. I work to celebrate struggle, to applaud the tradition of struggle in our community. Like the fact that the simple act of cornrowing one's hair is a radical act in a society that defines beauty as blonde tresses floating in the wind. 
It would be dishonest, though, to end my comments there. First and foremost, I, I write for myself. Writing has been a long time. Writing has been for a long time my major tool for self-instruction and self-development. I write to stay honest through pencil and paper. I run off at the mouth a lot. I got a penchant for flamboyant performance. I exaggerate to the point of hysteria. I cannot always be trusted with my mouth open. But when I sit down with the notebooks, I am absolutely serious about what I see, sense, and what I know. I write for the same reason I keep track of my dreams, for the same reason I meditate and practice being still, to stay in touch with me and not let too much slip by me. We're about building a nation. The inner nation needs building too. I began writing in a serious way when I got into teaching. It was a way to keep myself... It was a way to keep track of myself, to monitor myself. I'm a very seductive teacher, persuasive, infectious, overwhelming, irresistible. I worked hard in the classroom to teach students to critique me constantly, to protect me from their, to protect themselves from my nonsense. But let's face it, the teacher-student relationship we've been trained with is very colonial in nature. It's fraught with dangers. The powers given to teachers over students' minds, students' spirits, students' development, like my God. To rise above that, and to insist of myself and of them that we realign this relationship along progressive lines, that we refashion this relationship along progressive lines, demands a great deal of courage, imagination, energy, and will. Writing was a way to hear myself, to check myself. Writing was and is an act of discovery. This is, these are excerpts from conversations with Tony Cade Bambara with emphasis in bolding my own. She responded to the question, what determines your responsibility to yourself and your audience in an interview by Claudia Tate from 1983. Recall what I, the narrator and invisible pen, said to you at the beginning of this essay, right? I am here to show my work. I am in the business of revolution, page by page, meal by meal, moment by moment. The world I wish to see has seas of makers, millions and billions of distinct fingerprints all over a brand new mode of being, which means learning, which means teaching. Teaching has made me very serious about my pen because I too run off at the seams. I want to make sure I show you my work. Writing is what keeps me tethered to worlds I don't know. And what you don't know will make worlds. But let's zoom in on that tidbit about teaching and accountability. There's a drop in that last paragraph that I left out. I frequently discovered that I was dangerous, a menace, virtually unfit to move the students and myself into certain waters. I would have to go in the classroom and beat them up for not taking me to the wall, for succumbing to mere charm and flesh when they should have been challenging me, right? Kicking my ass. That. You all take my word for it way too much for my liking. I'm going to be so real with you. I resonated with these bits from Toni Morrison's piece because you all take my word for it way too much for my liking. I am able to inject emotion into you with video with sickening ease. Okay? Reading what I write sands my beautiful speaking voice and my pretty face, gives you the moment to taste the words in your mouth to see if you actually agree. This is not to say that emotions don't contribute to our sense of knowing. I did a whole talk with Eugene Boston about what we consider knowledge and emotions as important sites of knowledge. I'm saying here, social media television is designed to imbue you with emotion. 
You are supposed to be so laden with feeling that you cannot help but feel for the narrator, the person on screen, the protagonist, or or what have you, right? We give you the facts. That's what images and music do for us. They're vehicles of emotion. Feeling with the person on screen is not necessarily a bad thing, and your emotions can most definitely be hijacked into getting you to buy or support or adopt things outside of your best interest if you are not careful. And as an educator, I don't want you to just feel what I feel. I don't want you to consider me correct because I said it beautifully. I want you to sharpen your critical thinking skills and your world making capacities. I absolutely do not leave emotion out of that. Emotions are central. Uh, they're, they're, they're as central as the written, verbal, numeric, social, ecological knowledges that we're able to gain and navigate in this world and the next. I'm just extra cognizant of how much I can lead viewers to feel with me without further thought. That's terrifying. The videos of mine that go most viral are the ones I show the most emotion, whatever that emotion is. Happy, cheerful, despondent, grieved, furious, combative. We love emotion. We live such stifled lives. So the challenge of reading is to navigate the narrative without the overture of overt feelings. There is no face to latch on to, no music that sways you. Words on a page, especially, cannot compete. With screen time, they're not meant to. The boredom that opens up space in your mindscape is so that you can have your own thoughts, feelings, and opinions. Listen again, okay? Reading is still uncomfortable in certain seasons of life, especially seasons that require high screen time for me. I still have a week, two weeks go by without reading. I still pick up a book and blink and realize I've spent 40 minutes on my phone. I read specifically because I notice how much my brain expands his capacity when I force him into the mode of expansion. Expansion is itchy. It's uncomfortable. Reading does not always feel good, just like going to the gym or doing your dishes or eating vegetables does not feel good, especially if you haven't done it in a long time. And yet, I sigh in relief when it's done. When reading defines my habits, I noticeably think easier. I read too because I witness, on the other sides of the world, Palestinian scholars, journalists, poets be exploded. Entire universities be swept and leveled from the earth. I witness the most internally displaced people in Sudan be a population of children who may never learn to read and write because of what their world becomes. Col colonialism necessitates every system of education be turned to rubble, so they alone make the stories and the images and the vehicles of emotion. And we in the United States buy into the lie that it's just coincidentally too hard to read. Some of the people that galvanized me the most did so through use of words, the words of revolutionaries, especially poets. My first love was poetry. One day we'll read the poetry of Asada Shakur and Bloom together. Today, this essay already grows quite long. So finally, short form video entertains more than it sticks. I have grown to detest short form video as a means of learning, specifically because of these insidious apps. As previously stated, I am a proud member of Gen Z, cake card carrying. I have watched at this point in my life, hundreds of hours of educational content, everything from TED Ed to Crash Course to ASAP Science and many in between. And it feels good, fun, rebellious even, to use my screen time to learn. Even though I personally did grow up util utilizing Atlas books and encyclopedias in school, I still ended up at the computer lab regularly by sixth grade or so. 
I'm one of the last of my kind to never have an iPad babysitter because that technology was just widely not available yet in my community. We had a computer room in my house and dial-up internet until I was a teenager. And yet still, the vast majority of things I spent all that time learning in short form video, I could not tell you now. I have stronger retention of the maps that I hand drew from a world atlas in the fourth grade than I do of the internet games we played to you to learn geography. I can tell you the thesis and the central arguments of a book I read two years ago, of most of the books I read two years ago, or a documentary I watched two years ago, a podcast project, an album I listened to. All of these methods of learning require long-form attention. Can you tell me the thesis and the supporting arguments of the videos you watched from two calendar years ago? Not, not just one that really happened to stick in your memory, most. Can you tell me most of the claims and evidence made in the hours of video that you watched? Additionally, there is no nuanced argument that you can explore the heights and depths of by watching someone talk for three minutes, and most people don't even give it three minutes. I have a Hall of Famer tweet here from Kule Bravo. Kuli? Kuli Bravo? I think so. It reads, Twitter is the only place where well-articulated sentences still get misinterpreted. You can say, I like pancakes, and someone will say, so you hate waffles? No, bitch. That's a whole new sentence. What the fuck is you talking about? I love this tweet. Lord, I love this tweet. It's actually, it's true of all short-form media. We've reached the point in a persuasive essay, uh, and it's near universally found, where I engage in the analysis of rebuttal. That's where the narrator, the pen, hi, me, Ismatu, I anticipate the opponent's claims against my theses and I springboard back stronger arguments for my affirmative. This section necessitates self-critique and it also creates the groundwork for critique that is actually capable of moving us forward. And unfortunately, I have to use this section to regard all critiques that are lack fucking luster. Every time I say something like, reading is a keystone of liberatory practice, someone accuses me of worshiping the written word. I say short form video does not teach us as much as we think it does. And someone gently informs me of the importance of indigenous storytelling as if that might be the first time I'm hearing of such a thing. And as if all indigenous people in the world are placed into some big group chat. Okay. In so far, right? Reading this essay, you have already learned about me that I personally, by way of dyslexia and other neurodivergent benefit from alternative learning methods, it's why I read all of my essays, that I am indigenous. Also, Black American traditions include oral methods of survival heavy, considering it was illegal for us to read for most of our existence in the United States. And also, thirdly, that I dedicated my undergraduate thesis work that followed me into graduate school to oral history and storytelling because of the widespread rural illiteracy in Sierra Leone, my country of origin, and also much of my family. While I would normally use the rebuttal section to grapple with better research critiques, I instead must review my own work because short form engagement does not give said critics time or space or incentive to root their critiques of me in actual research. Because all of these things are things that are public information. Bite-sized thoughts, especially short-form video, convince you that the whole thing is right in front of you. I am trapped in an academic zoo wherein I produce thoughts or emotions or podcasts or what have you and often receive nothing meaningful back. The critique I receive on TikTok and Instagram just consistently lacks basis. It's disappointing. It's lackluster. 
I like to be critiqued. Critical analysis allows artists to take more compelling, cutter, bitter, cunning shape. Short conformity stunts our conversation to the length of your attention span. This undermines the communion between artists and muse. Short form video especially captures the audience by what they feel, right? Like we already talked about, not what they wish to know. The reasons my musings on reading or the lack thereof have had no trouble going viral is because I made them at my wits end. I cry on camera even. People respond with the way they feel having seen it and more people save the video than read or listened to any of the, the essays I mentioned. Feelings are important. And short form video land. Find six successes in giving you the fullness of human experience back to us in curtailed, bite-sized little pieces, almost like an emotional ventilator. It does not require you to concentrate. It doesn't require you to do anything but receive the emotional and the educative, the educative, <laughs> the emotional and the educational words of someone who more than likely read and engaged in long-form research to be able to make the video that you're watching. Do you know how much your oppressors read? Do you know how much your oppressors read? Conclusions. Reading, then, is a crucial act of resistance. Not the only way or the primary way, but the mode of literacy that we must not negate or shy away from. Reading and writing are disciplines distinct from other forms of literacy. Aural, as in ear, and oral, as in mouth, proficiency, speaking and listening. Media literacy, as in video watching, knowing when you're being advertised to. Financial literacy, social literacy, numerical literacy. Oop, shout out to all the baddies with much math-rooted anxiety uh, coming from the same oppressive upbringings. These are histories, blueprints, stories that we have access to only by way of pages that they've been printed on. If that wasn't important, we wouldn't lock university libraries away behind several hundred thousand dollar paywalls. If a reading was not important, if there was not agency to be found in the power of reading, the empire would not work so hard to burn your hands away. If video learning is truly as harmless and as neutral as we think, why are there screens everywhere in this world? Why are they so easy to... To, 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 to obtain? Why are there so much advertisements, so much incentives to spend all day looking at screens and the way someone else is making you feel? Can you see the seams? Why are there screens every place you turn your eyes? I, Ismatu, the narrator, I am a person who marvels at the freedom dreams of children and the youngest ones reach for books with open excitement. I am a person who sees clearly the world that we've had for the last several hundred years as it crumbles. Violent thrashing, like a drowning man, or like the vacuum of a sinking ship. The desperation becomes more intense, targeted, flails to take everything it can down because it knows that it's going under. I want you to consider this world's collapse as inevitable. So then the question remains, what happens after this one? Who is being born? Will we be here to catch that baby, this newborn world, and raise it up for us, for our kindness, for the sake of our love? Or will this world be worse than the one leaving? Make yourself an enemy of hopelessness and complacency. Do not listen to the voices, internal and external, that tell you that you cannot. You must. You can. You must. Read. Read. For me, 
and for the children coming after us because if we can't read what chance do we what chance do they stand are we certain that we want to do that to them i hope the words and the work of your day pass through your hands with ease or simpler said peace